Well, this city is famous for its gamblers, prostitutes, exhibitionists, antichrists, alcoholics, sodomites, drug addicts, fetishists, pornographers, frauds, jades, litterbugs, and lesbians. Why did he leave out Onus? All of whom are only too well protected. No, no, no. Don't do it like a tour guide. It's not a good this thing. City. <laughs> In this city. In this city. If you look famous. over here, you'll see our famous lesbians. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fire the Cannon. This week, by royal decree from our king patron, we are doing the quintessential New Orleans novel, A Confederacy of Dunces. By... John Kennedy Tool. Speaking of tools, let's talk about that main character. Wow. No, we actually, I sh- shouldn't have done the segue at that point. We haven't introduced ourselves. <laughs> Speaking of tools, let's introduce ourselves. <laughs> so now, everyone, it's time to meet the hosts of this podcast, the 21st century Thelma and Louise. First up, Rachel. Rachel. Jackie. Rachel. Hey. It's me. I'm one of the two. I don't know which one. I'm a host of this podcast, though. And second up, Jacko. Jackie, it's me. I'm the other host. <laughs> yeah. Either Thelma or Louise, depending on how Theo's feeling that day. Well, Thelma is the mom of John Kennedy Tool, so. Whoa. Connections. And yeah. introducing <laughs> our temporary other host, no, 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 the no. 21st century convertible from Thelma and Louise. <laughs> <laughs> the cigarette that Thelma threw away. Theo. <laughs> Come on. That could be something else. Maybe I'm the cop that they trapped in the trunk of the car. All right, fine. I'm, I'm the convertible. You guys both drive into the Grand Canyon yes. with me. And Tristan is... The Grand Canyon. Tristan, oh, yeah, that's true. No. Yes, that's yes. true. That's factual. Or maybe this book is the Grand Canyon. And Tristan is whichever one of them was driving. No, We're Tristan, the no Tristan is Tristan the, is Thelma and let's Louise. Let's cut the shit out right no, now. No, why are no, we no, talking no, about no, Thelma and Louise? No, you two are Thelma and Louise. I, I don't know why we are. <laughs> uh, and then I'm the convertible. Tristan is the police officers chasing behind us. Uh-huh. And the Grand Canyon is this book. So Tristan chases us into the Grand Canyon. Oh my gosh, that was a perfect metaphor. I said all of that about you being the car and you got so upset about it and now you're like oh perfect this was before the car. we realized that Tristan should be the police officers behind Thelma Louise and their car friend <laughs> okay so basically the reason we're doing this is that we have a tier on Patreon and the tier is called Command Fire it's our current highest tier if you support us at that level you can order us to cover any piece of pop culture of your choosing any piece of pop culture I thought we said any book. Tristan picked this book, which we told him, like, you're kind of wasting your powers because it is a classic (laughs) and we probably would cover it anyway. And he said, well, I just want to push it to the front of the line. So we're like, all right, we'll do it. Probably isn't good enough for the king. (laughs) Only the best for the king. (laughs) So this is not only a classic of the Western canon, but specifically of the Southern canon, of the American Southern canon. So John Kennedy Toole, the author of this book, was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, and And he was extremely, extremely smart. He skipped a bunch of grades. He graduated high school at 16. And at 22, he became the youngest professor ever at whatever college he was teaching at. I forget the name. I think it was Hunter College. Hunter College, yeah. In 1961, he was drafted into 
what war was happening? The Viet couldn't have been the Vietnam War. Well, he didn't. Regardless, he went to Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah, what war was going on in Puerto Rico? <laughs> so he got drafted over there, and then while in Puerto Rico, he wrote the majority of this book. We'll talk about the book itself, but after he died, his mom found the manuscript of this novel and spent a long time trying to get it published, trying to get it out into the world. She finally managed to do so by accosting an author. <laughs> that is exactly the verb I was going to use. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's the verb that he used as well. So in the foreword to the book, um, this author, Walker Percy, and he describes none other than Thelma Toole, John Kennedy's mother, coming up to him and basically shoving this greasy, ink-stained manuscript into his hands and saying, read this. And he said that he didn't want to read it and he was used to being attacked by people trying to get them to read his manu- to read their manuscripts. And he didn't want to. And he said his only defense would be to start reading it and to realize that it was bad and then tell Thelma that it was too bad and he had no interest in finishing it. But to his shock and dismay, it was good and he had to keep reading it. After several attempts and several years of working with Walker Percy, she managed to get this published and it's been a, a cult classic and the Southern canon and the Western canon ever since. It is really funny to think of him being like, reading a paragraph and being like, oh no, and then reading more, oh no, oh no, and getting to the end and being like, oh, now I have to like dedicate my life to helping this woman on her quest. (laughs) (laughs) That's, yeah, that's basically it. That's the story. His mom, if you watch interviews with her, it seems like she really, he was her only child and she really loved him a lot, but they had a very difficult relationship And he was going through some sort of mental crisis at the time of his death. He apparently was extremely paranoid and he had an argument with his mother and then left to go on a months long road trip. And then while he was driving around, he ended up killing himself. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like a lot of her quest was kind of driven by guilt. His mother blamed her son's suicide on the famous editor Robert Gottlieb who didn't publish the book. She was constantly saying anti-Semitic stuff about him. So, I mean, I guess he's Jewish, but I, I saw multiple interviews with her and she was like, every time he she mentioned him, she said something anti-Semitic. But anyway, yeah, it seems like he actually was like very encouraging and very nice to Tool about the book. And they corresponded for years with the editor helping him for free, like giving him a lot of advice on the book. And they were like working on it together. And he would tell him like, yeah, you know, this is shows a lot of promise. You know, if you write something else, I would love to see it. And they were on good terms. And in fact, Tool wrote him multiple letters complaining about his mom and like in his life at home and so on. Yeah, like they sort of got closer and he started to open up about personal stuff instead of just the book he was working on. And Gottlieb tried several times to get him to actually come to New York and somehow they kept missing each other whenever he came. Yeah. This is a funny book, but it's not just a funny book. You can't really separate it from the tragedy of what happened to to its author. Right. But basically what I'm saying is I, it seems like Tool's suicide was not due to his book not being published. It seemed that he was having some sort of mental break at the time. He was behaving irrationally and just everyone was worried about him. So it's not like he was a tortured artist who just like everyone was ignoring him and didn't see his genius because people did see his genius, but they were just saying the guy that he was specifically talking to was like, you got to work on this book some more or write something else. Yeah. And also we'll talk more about this later, but he did also think that it lacked a purpose and a lot of other contemporary novels at that time 
time were focusing on social justice and like, mm-hmm. you know, examining the the social ills of the time. And it seemed like this book was actively the opposite of that. And the editor didn't think it would be okay to publish. Yeah, it could have just not been the right time. Who knows if it was published in the 60s, maybe it wouldn't have been popular. Right. So he wrote it in 1961, 1962, um, died in 1969. And then the book was published in 1980. It's beloved today for the just the force of its language. And one thing that was I thought was funny from this New Yorker article that we've been referencing, and we might link to it when we put it in the description. Mm -hmm. Uh, The author of this piece said, it seems like this might be one of the only books that was more fun to write than it is to read. (laughs) And so, of course, Tristan and many, many others of this book's devoted fans would, of course, disagree that this is not fun to read. I think it's fun to read. But I also agree that it must have been great fun to write. Um, (laughs) It seems like he's just showing off. He's just like flaunting this explosive genius with his writing and it seems like maybe he could have pointed his genius in another direction. His observational skills are really astounding. There is a lot that I don't like about the book, but his ability to like paint characters based on their language and word choice is amazing. Right. The dialogue's amazing. Yeah. And I think the main thing that editors had a problem with was the plot, which we're now going to describe to you. Yeah, let's let's give it a try. (laughs) You're going to get the plot and you're not going to get the actual prose. Exactly. Good luck. (laughs) Okay. So the book opens with our horrible main character, (laughs) Ignatius J. Riley, waiting for his mom outside a store. Does one of you want to try to describe Ignatius at all? Uh, He's very large. He always wears a green hunting cap, has a mustache. His hands are always described as paws. He's grotesque. He is a grotesque figure. (laughs) Oily hair, oily mustache. (laughs) Yeah, he's very unkempt. He dresses terribly. He smells like old tea bags. I think he wears the same clothes most days. Yeah, shirt, red flannel shirt or something in a green hunting cap. Well, so he wears a green hunting cap with two flaps that he normally leaves down, but if someone's talking to him or if he wants to hear something, he'll like lift the flaps up Mm -hmm. and they'll just like stand out like wings. He's basically a cartoon character. He even wears the same stuff every day. Yeah, he mentions his valve. He says it's constantly shutting when he doesn't want it to shut. He's constantly drinking soda and eating sweets, like stuffing treats in his mouth all the time. Twelve brownies a day, like two, two huge dozen cakes, jelly four donuts, sandwiches at yeah. a time. A swig of Dr. Nut. Yo. Dr. Nut. Is Dr. Nut a real soda? It was, yeah, apparently. Darn it. Wow. It was like a New Orleans soda. But I think it was supposed to taste like almond. What? Dr. Nut was my father. Please, just call me Nut. (laughs) That's what that peanut man did, you know? Yeah. You can't just say that. What? Mr. Peanut. He died and then he came back to life as a little tiny Mr. Peanut and he was like, Mr. Peanut's my father. Call me Baby Nut. Or later he was like, call me Nut Junior. We're going to have to take a break because Rachel's just completely lost her mind and started hallucinating. Nut Junior. (laughs) Nut Junior. She keeps screaming Nut Junior. And then Nut Junior tweeted, Mr. Peanut's my father. Call me Nut Junior. They made a new account? (laughs) No, they used the same account. They just forgot the password to the old account and just decided to start over with a whole new character. But they called him Baby Nut for a while and everyone was like, do not call this character Baby Nut. Baby Nut. Okay. So Ignatius is waiting for his mom and a police officer comes up and starts asking him questions. And immediately Ignatius gets really upset and offended and starts yelling and just saying bizarre stuff. And other people join in and they say like, why are you attacking this boy? He's waiting for his mom. And an old man joins in and starts 
yelling about communists. Communists, I guess, would be the. <laughs> he doesn't say his T's. There's a there's a lot of uh, vernacular yeah. dialogue and spelling in here. So every time they say communist, it's communist. <laughs> but yeah, so he's talking about the communists, and he says all the police are communists, and blah blah blah. And at this point, Ignatius's mom comes outside. Everybody in the world seems to like bend to whatever Ignatius's weird logic is. Like if this happened in real life, not everybody around him would be going leave this poor little boy alone but that's how they react to him yeah i feel like in this scene and a few other scenes people believe all of ignatius's bullshit basically but then for most of the book they all just think he's a weirdo (laughs) it's because he said like i'm waiting for my mother can't a boy wait for his mother these days and so then that just got people on his side Mm -hmm. kind of also shows that they're not into cops i guess i would say i guess he's also like grotesque and disgusting but also like sometimes weirdly magnetic and he can whatever yeah all right so i'll let rachel continue with the summary okay let me finish the first line of our outline (laughs) thank you (laughs) anytime ignatius's mother comes outside and she joins in the old man starts getting arrested ignatius and his mom both turn on the old man hand him over to the cop and run away and hide in a terrible disgusting bar called the night of joy (laughs) and they wait they wait the mom's drinking a lot ignatius is being an asshole he tells a story about the one time he left new orleans and how he got car sick and he doesn't have a job and all this other stuff and in fact that was to go for a job interview at a teaching job at some other college and he didn't get the job because of how horrible the bus ride was right he i think he didn't even do the interview he was just like that sucked i'm going home (laughs) and he took a cab ride back and he made the cab driver lose his license because he kept making him drive so slowly threatening he was going to throw up he just ruins everyone's life (laughs) so it turns out the old man who was calling the police officer a communist his name is claude robichaud and he got arrested. <laughs> so he's in jail. <laughs> and he's crying and saying, don't arrest me. My grandbabies, what will they think of me? I'm an old grandpa. I've got grandchildren. I don't want them to find out. <laughs> okay, so he's in jail and he's talking to a black guy named Jones. So the old man, Claude, is white. The black guy says, I got arrested because some lady started screaming about stolen cashews and I got nabbed for that. And they searched me and I didn't even have any cashews on me, but I'm here and I'm black, so I'm sure they're going to, like, pin cashews on me. He's like, I don't even think I like cashews. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, I don't even eat cashews. (laughs) But so they're talking, and the old man starts crying. The sergeant comes up and then ends up scolding the officer who arrested him, whose name is Mancuso. So he scolds Mancuso and says, you need to let this old man go. Like, Bring me a real criminal next time. Yeah, bring me a real suspicious person. And from then on, he's just like punishing Mancuso for this for the rest of the book. And it's funny. Yeah, he never says, bring me a criminal. He just wants suspicious people. Suspicious characters. <laughs> yeah, don't give me anybody who's actually committing a crime or doing something dangerous. Just give me someone who looks bad. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he says that Ignatius looked like a big prevert. And the sergeant's like, well, why didn't you bring him to me? You brought me this poor old man. <laughs> he says, go out there and get that that prevert fella. So this is his quest for the rest of the book is to arrest a suspicious character. This is also where Jones hears about Ignatius, right? Yeah, for the first time. Mm-hmm. He hears that there's like a large man with this hat. He looks like a prevert. Then for the rest of the book, he is trying to find Ignatius. Yeah, he's got his interest piqued <laughs> by this weirdo. <laughs> he, he keeps hearing rumors about he's him. He's intrigued. <laughs> yeah. He like kind of wants to find him, but also 
kind of wants to stay away from him. Like, quick, tell me where that guy is so I can keep away from yeah, him. Yeah, he's fascinating. <laughs> like, I don't though. want that character sounds horrible. Yeah. The book is divided into chapters and sub-chapters. We're still in chapter one. What we just read was, like, part two, and now we go back to part three, and we're back on Ignatius and his mother at the bar. Mm-hmm. Just to sum up, we have Ignatius, his mom, Irene. We have... The old man, Claude Robichaud. Officer Mancuso. (laughs) Yep, Jones, Officer Mancuso. Those are the characters we have so far. At the bar, they meet a woman who works there named Darlene, and she's also important. So yeah, sorry, but these characters just keep coming back. So you kind of do need to know who they are. Darlene's a not very bright kind of blonde woman, and her job at the bar is to just sell drinks, but... Through trickery. um, She's not super good at it. She's not paid to do it, but she makes commission on whatever drinks people end up buying. But her dream is to become a dancer. She wants to become an exotic. Which she calls just an exotic, right? Yeah, (laughs) an exotic. (laughs) So we cut back to the bar and Ignatius and Mrs. Riley meet a man from New York who buys the hat (laughs) off his mom's head (laughs) and leaves. He says, "I'm I'm a vintage fashion seller and I would love to buy your hat. He comes back later in the book. Yeah, he comes back. Ignatius is mad at his mom. He's just an asshole to his mom. Basically, that's also what the scene shows. He's an asshole when he finds out she sells the hat. He's like, that was an important piece of my childhood. I can't believe you sold that. I can relate a little bit, but he's an asshole about it. <laughs> yeah, basically, you get the impression that he's totally reliant on her living in her house, and but he's also completely unappreciative. He's controlling. Yeah. Yeah, he's very entitled. He's like, why would you do this? I was very attached to that hat, even though it's... It's not his hat. And he always demands that she spend less money on herself and more money on him, even though she's already doing everything for Correct. him. Right. So the mom at this point is pretty drunk and they get in her car and he is stressing her out and yelling at her. He's riding in the back, of course. Huge yeah. man child. She's like kind of drunk. She ends up backing into a car and he's like, drive away, drive away. And she panics and ends up hitting a building. She's like sitting there crying She's trying to drive away and Ignatius ends up throwing up and the police officer (laughs) from before sees them. At this point, he is being punished by his sergeant and being forced to dress like a suspicious character. So every time we see him again, he's wearing some other weird outfit. Yeah. Yeah. Every time he talks to his sergeant, he's like, get out of here and go put your costume on. Today, you're a clown. Yeah. So that's the end of chapter one. (laughs) What an introduction. That's the high point of my opinion of Ignatius. Keeps dropping lower and lower. That he keeps throwing up. doesn't get any better. Sorry, (laughs) audience. (laughs) So Ignatius is always breaking up the chapters by writing little tracks in his notebook. So it always talks about him getting out his big chief tablet and going to a fresh new page and starting writing something else. And his room is basically just covered in trash and filth and stacks and stacks of these papers and these notebooks and things that he's written that he's never done anything with. Do you guys Um, know about big chief tablets? Did you look them up? Yeah. It's It's for little kids to practice their hand writing and he writes in crayon yeah right? he writes it's just always sometimes it's pencil it's just always smudged beyond belief yeah which is funny because the way that this manuscript was found in real life was completely smudged according to thelma mm-hmm. so they're for little kids he's he's very childlike in a lot of ways but he's always writing about his ideas and he 
he's very educated. He's gone to school and stuff, but he just isn't doing anything with his education. His belief system is basically that um, everything about contemporary life is a sign of moral decrepitude. He's a medievalist. He's a medievalist. He believes that society peaked in the 14th century, so around the 1350s or so. He talks about how he wishes there was some great authoritarian pope who would come and take control. He talks a lot about black people and says things like, I really don't think that they should continue in their struggle to join the middle class. Like, we should all just reject everything about class. Yeah, he says the good thing about black people is how poor and ignorant they are. Like, he is a disgusting racist. Yeah, and he was like, I wish I was like that so I wouldn't have to, yeah, I wouldn't have any pressure to get a good job because there would be no good jobs to get. So, like, yeah, that would be great. He has these weird critiques. Like, so if you read these things that he says, some of it is a critique. The book is a satire. So some of what he's saying is a critique of how black people were treated at the time, which is like they were not allowed to have jobs. (laughs) But Ignatius is just so racist. John Kennedy Toole was quite racist, which isn't surprising considering where and when he was born. But some of the racism of the narrative bleeds into it. And I'm never sure, okay, what, which of this racism is meant to be satirical, like a criticism and which is him not realizing? Yeah. Well, a lot of it, and he's not the only character that does this, but he talks a lot about his understanding of the problem with racism and race relations as though he is the expert on it. Yeah. And he has lots and lots and lots of suggestions. And there's other characters, white characters, who talk a lot about, like, their plight to save the black people from oppression, basically. It's obvious that John Kennedy Tool is making fun of He's them. He's making fun of everyone. Literally every character is a caricature. Everyone. <laughs> there's no one who is good at all. I think my thing, and just having read so far of what I have, it seems like the racism is not so much the explicit things that Ignatius is saying about black people. It's the total lack of empathy, Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Like, it doesn't seem like black people are real to the author. I don't know. To me, it seems like they're basically used as a device to show more about Ignatius. Right. He will think he is defending black people in some way. He has the wrong motivations every time. He doesn't understand. Yeah. I think that character, that could be hilarious and that could be very appropriate. This idea of like the white savior who has no idea what they're doing. But then so far in the book, there hasn't been any black character who really gets to have a personality other than just being a caricature of a black person. But like Rachel said, they're all kind of character caricatures. Our only main character who is not white is Jones. Mm-hmm. We have some like Jewish characters, which I don't know how white they would have been considered, but all the Jewish characters we see are wealthy. (laughs) And terrible. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's just hard to parse, which I would certainly not say like, if somebody likes this book, I'm not going to be like, oh, you're racist or like this book is racist. It's just uncomfortable to read. (laughs) It does make you think though. It does make you think a lot about how much of this is satire and how much of this might just be right <laughs> beliefs hiding in, yeah. in the book yeah it's uh something you gotta think about okay so what we were saying was he frequently talks about the medieval philosopher boethius's book consolation of philosophy yes all you need to know is he's obsessed with this medieval philosopher he's obsessed with a couple other medieval philosophers and saints he is as the article that we read said most reactionaries that you meet 
want to go back to like the 1950s. <laughs> Ignatius is such a reactionary, he wants to go back to the 1350s or the 450s. <laughs> so reactionary that it's not, it's honestly not really concerning. <laughs> yeah, like he thinks pop music is vulgar, but he also thinks jazz is vulgar. And, and probably he, classical music. And he says hymnals are vulgar. He hates the Enlightenment. He hates the Renaissance. Right. He says the the last great musician was Scarlatti, which would have been like, I think he died in probably like 1750-ish or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> which, I mean, honestly, that surprised, I thought that was like a little late. I feel like the, the important thing from the consolation of philosophy is the... The wheel of fortune. Yeah, Fortuna is always spinning her wheel. Seems like he subscribes to this belief that we don't have that much control over what happens in our lives. If yeah. Fortuna decides her luck has to go a certain way, then that's the way it goes. He feels like he's on a downward spin on this wheel of fortune throughout the whole book. And especially when his mom asks him to do something he doesn't want to do. If she asks him to get a job, he's like, ah, oh, Fortuna spins her wheel. Right. He sort of justifies everything based on this philosophy. If something slightly good happens, he says, oh, now I'm on an upswing in the wheel of fortune. <laughs> but then like something bad happens again. He's like, oh, I plummeted even further. And he's not taking any... It's never his fault, right? Yeah, it's always yeah. an external actor. The funny and... thing about him believing in this wheel of fortune thing is that he has such a huge effect on everyone he comes into contact with in the book and even people he doesn't come into contact with. Right. So the whole book mm -hmm. basically exists to disprove his philosophy. <laughs> but that's interesting, right? Because you can think about it as the author saying, maybe the idea is we feel or, or Ignatius feels powerless, but in reality, if he just used a little bit of his education and used a little bit of his skill with writing to some good purpose, he could actually do things, but he just doesn't realize he can do anything good. He's also a bad person, so it's great that he doesn't realize he could have an effect because the way he's written, if he tried to do something, it would be bad. <laughs> oh no, for sure, it would be awful, but he does have objectively like good abilities at things. He just needs to point them somewhere and also not be awful, but whatever. Yeah, he would hate you for saying that. Yeah, he, he would. would probably yell at you. <laughs> he would say, you're a liberal feminist Jew and I'm not even a Jew. Part of his philosophy, which I don't know if this has anything to do with Boethius or this is just his fundamental immaturity or a lot of other people think of this as just trying to maybe push something down, but he's absolutely abhorrent of sex or anything to do with sex. He's never had it, doesn't want it, um, thinks any mention of it is disgusting. Right. Any mention of like women or men being liberated sexually, he thinks these people ought to be just executed. <laughs> but he's a horrible masturbator, which leads us to our next point, basically. Okay, so let's talk about it. So <laughs> he talks about how he's bored by masturbation now. He says, oh, you know, when I was a teen, I used to be like the king of masturbating and I had all these devices that were so great. I used to use rubber gloves and feathers and blah, 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 but I would always get so depressed when I had to put them away. So now I just don't even like it. Well, he just did it too much and it lost yeah, its thrill. <laughs> Tang. Okay, Jackie, you want to explain yeah. the horrible thing? No, I really don't. Ugh. I honestly, I didn't even know what was happening until it happened. And that's why I was like, this is gross. Skip ahead like 15 seconds if you can. So he he just like starts humping his mattress basically. And then at, and then at the end, uh, it was about 
his childhood dog Rex and just imagining the dog like leaping through the grass and just being happy. Happy to see him. Happy to see him. And that's like his fantasy. It's so weird. Like it is gross, but it's not even just gross because you're like, what? It's bizarre. Because the fantasy is not sexual at all. It's completely devoid of anything sexual. Right. It's not bestiality. It's him just like envisioning his childhood dog being like, oh, hi, I'm so glad to see you, which is so pathetic and gross. (laughs) Do you think that's a little clumsy? It's a little clumsy, right? Like he misses childhood. He misses not having responsibilities and he misses uh, something liking him. Yeah. I just, I would love to talk to Tool and be like, why did you put this in here? What are you trying to make us think about him with this? (sighs) Weird. Okay. So the next little subchapter is Jones, the guy that we met in the prison. He takes a job at the Night of Joy. He's being severely underpaid, like well below minimum wage. So now he's co-workers with Darlene. The, the reason he has to take the job is because he can be arrested for being a vagrant. Yes. Even if he's paid so little, he can't live. He has to take the job. So the owner of the bar is just taking advantage of him and saying like, oh, you want to tell people I'm underpaying you? Well, then I'm just going to tell them that you won't work and then they'll arrest you. Yeah. yeah, But it seems like later she has a conversation with someone saying like, yeah, wow, I'm really scamming him because he thinks I could get him arrested for vagrancy, which implies that she couldn't actually get him arrested for vagrancy. Yeah. So there's some sort of miscommunication. Yeah. The next chapter or sub chapter 2.3, Officer Mancuso, who's wearing another weird outfit, visits the Riley household to talk to them about paying off the damage, which the person who owned the old, basically old shack that they ran into is claiming that it costs $1,200 to repair, which obviously Ignatius's mother can't pay for because they're living off of social security and he doesn't bring any money in. And at this point, you can hear that Ignatius is watching a popular TV show and just saying like horrible things about all the actors. (laughs) He says like, oh, those kids should be sent to the gas chambers and like- Look at these degenerates. Because they're just doing a popular dance. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So he's just like loudly yelling at the TV and his mother says, yeah, he won't miss that show. He watches it every time it comes on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's American Bandstand. (laughs) So his mother is talking to the police officer and they start bonding and he tells her like, hey, the next time I go bowling with my old aunt, I'll invite you with me. And he leaves and she tells Ignatius like, you have to get a job. You have to. Yes, this is sort of what sets the whole plot in motion is that they have to pay off these damages. Ignatius has to get a job. Final subchapter, Ignatius goes to the movie theater to watch a popular movie, gets excited when he sees that actors he hates are in it, and then he's loudly making fun of the movie the entire time. He like blows up an empty bag of popcorn and pops it at the screen. And everyone's like, shut (laughs) up. Yeah, he's just like yelling horrible things about the women on the screen and all this other stuff and he gets kicked out. Is this what happens when Holden Caulfield grows up and like just gets really deranged and starts getting delighted by everything he hates? I don't know. I don't think so. I I would be curious to see these two interact. I would too. (laughs) I don't think Holden could become Ignatius, but I'd be very curious to see what they think of each other. Or, or... Holden, Holden's entire dream is to stop kids from growing up and noticing the degeneracy of the world. And yeah, 
And then good for him. Ignatius is the fruit of his labors. <gasps> well, also Holden hates phonies, and Ignatius <laughs> is definitely not a phony. No, he's uh, very straightforward about who he is. So maybe Holden would really learn a lot about how wrong he is in his opinions. He's a phony in that he doesn't know himself at all, or he refuses to acknowledge himself. And he lies a lot. <laughs> yeah, he does. I know, but I think Hold- when Holden's talking about phonies, he means people who are like— People who posture. They posture. They try to make themselves seem better than they are. But don't you feel like he is kind of doing that? Because he does seem to be a, he, he's sort of like a glutton for TV and movies, but then he acts like he hates it the whole time. I don't know. Sometimes he tries to seem better because he talks a lot about how he was offered this job or like tried to get it and it didn't work out because he was sick. In reality, he flunked the interview. Like he doesn't want to admit stuff like that. Yeah. But the thing is, he's so pathetic and everyone who sees him knows that he's like a pathetic liar and it doesn't seem to bother him even. I would wouldn't put him in the same category as the girl Holden goes on a date with who's like, oh, you saw these people at your summer retreat? No, I don't think so. I understand that in the way most people use the word phony, yeah, sure, that could apply. But the way Holden used it, I don't think that he would put Ignatius in that category. I don't think so either. And actually, I mean, obviously, this is a huge exaggeration of the way that any person is. But I feel like I know a person or two who kind of reminds me of this character. And I feel like they kind of know that they're lying, but they also kind of start to believe it. And they don't really care anymore because it makes them feel good. Yeah. I feel like that's where he is. Maybe so. Hmm. All right, chapter three. So Ignatius apparently tried to get a job selling insurance and he wore his normal horrible outfit and did not get the job. And he tells his mother he would like to get a job selling newspapers. She's like, how are you going to get on a bike, Ignatius? He says, you should just drive me around in your car (laughs) and I'll throw the papers. She's like, no, (laughs) that's not happening. (laughs) So that's that. So the next section, Ignatius, he reports the night of joy to Officer Mancuso, who tells a sergeant about it. Ignatius says there's a bee girl there, which is a bar girl. Why is this illegal? I don't know if it's because they don't reveal that they're working for the bar, maybe. I think that's what it is. That seems very legalistic. Basically, what Darlene does is illegal and... Ignatius decides to try to get everyone arrested at the Night of Joy because he just hates degeneracy. Yeah. I mean, he's just trying to take attention away from himself. But so the officer tells his sergeant about it and the sergeant is like, oh, fuck you. Who cares? But then looks into the tip anyway and says, I don't want him to get any credit for this. So he sends a different (laughs) cop. Yeah. (laughs) So now in the next section, Ignatius is like, all right, okay, I'll try to get a job. And there's a building. There's a terrible business called Levy Pants in an old rundown building. They only have a a few people who work in the office. It's a horrible place to work. Everyone's constantly quitting. There are two people you should know about who work there. The office manager is named Mr. Gonzalez, who is too much of a pushover. And there's a woman named Miss Trixie, who is very old and actually senile and really wants to retire. But the owner's wife thinks that she needs a project, so won't let her retire. (laughs) Basically, all she does is walk around, make messes, take naps, go to the bathroom, confuse things, and go home. She collects (laughs) all the clutter in the office. She just has, like, bags and bags of just random cigarette butts and little bits of paper and stuff. That's kind of useful, though. She's kind of like a Roomba. (laughs) (laughs) The owner's wife thinks that if they let Miss Trixie retire, then Miss Trixie will die because she doesn't have any purpose in life. Whereas her purpose right now is so great. <laughs> She's ruining the office, constantly like spilling things and destroying paperwork. Yeah. So Ignatius walks in 
And for some reason, Mr. Gonzalez really is impressed by him because he's just so huge. <laughs> yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> for some reason, Mr. Gonzalez thinks he's amazing and everyone else thinks that he's terrible. A weirdo, yeah. yeah. I think it's because Mr. Gonzalez is so weak that he just sees like a strong personality and he's like, that's what we need. Basically. Yeah, he is very confident. There's another woman working there named Gloria. She's young. She doesn't last long because Ignatius decides he doesn't like her and he gets her fired on like his first day there. Yeah, literally. He starts a rumor that so, Gloria is going to quit at the end of the day. And Mr. Gal- Gonzalez is like, well, you can't quit if I fire you. And then he just <laughs> fires her. But from then on, Miss Trixie thinks that Ignatius is Gloria. And she calls him Gloria yep. every single time they interact. Yeah. Jones, working at the bar, gets paid $20 a week. And he works six days a week, more than 12 hours a day. Ignatius makes $60 a week working less than a nine to five (laughs) and Miss Trixie makes $40 a week. Ignatius says to Mr. Gonzalez, like shipping magnates are trying to hire me for thousands of dollars. And Mr. Gonzalez says, well, we'll give you 20 cents a day extra for car fare. And Ignatius says, sold. (laughs) (laughs) Theo, this is what you have to do when you're searching for jobs. Be an Ignatius. We'll go in there just like talking about, hey, my valve prevents me from walking to work. Do you think that you could just send a car for me every day? (laughs) The valve thing is (laughs) funny how he's able to convince anyone. I mean, he's able to convince Gonzalez that this valve is real. Yeah. He says everyone mm-hmm. has one. I feel like it's the word valve. Like he can't just say my stomach hurts. Like when he says valve, everyone's like, ooh, sounds like an engineering problem. Like we better give this guy some leeway. Yeah. <laughs> the next section, we cut back to the night of joy and Jones and the owner, Lena Lee, are arguing a lot because he knows he's being taken advantage of, but he tells her he straight up tells her I am here because I'm looking for evidence I know you have a scam going and once I have the evidence I'm going to take it to the police okay I don't understand the scam so basically what happens is Lana has somebody come in and she claims that she's doing charity for orphans yeah and Jones is like this is definitely a scam. Nobody like that is doing charity. She's doing something. But what is it? How does he know that? It's not revealed until the end. Should I tell you? Don't tell us. My guess is drugs. I just don't. Why did she have to mention orphans? She could have just said like, oh, this guy's like delivering beer. Wouldn't that be a much more sensible explanation for why he's there <laughs> delivering things? Well, he's giving, he gives her a lot of money, I thought. He's a little kid. Like a teen. He's a teenager coming in. Okay. Okay. Jones knows there's a scam going on because she is giving them something and she's receiving a bunch of money. Right. And he tells her, like, you're doing charity for orphans. The orphans are paying you a lot for that charity. And also the teenager is, like, very rude and snarky with him and he doesn't seem like a like a poor little orphan. <laughs> so in the final section, Ignatius, he's going home and he's thinking to himself how he's going to get all the employees fired except Miss Trixie and Mr. Gonzalez. He loves Trixie. Because he thinks that it would make it for a much more pleasant working environment. And he gets a letter from his ex kind of girlfriend, Myrna Minkoff, who is a Jewish woman who lives in New York and is like the opposite of him politically, but she also sucks. I think they're both equally condescending towards minorities yeah. and they both think they're helping. The thing is, she actually wants to improve people's lives. He does not want to improve people's lives. He just wants her to think he's doing it. Yes. Right. The only reason he tries to do it later is to be like, 
like, that'll show her if I actually do something. Yeah, he's just being perverse. Yeah. He's being perverse. But they they both suck. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. I think she wants to improve people's lives, but I don't think it's out of altruism. I don't think it's out of altruism. I don't know enough to say yet. But just based on the way all the characters are written, yeah, I'm sure she's not a good person. Yeah. She writes to him and is like, what are you doing sending me this letter about all these, this talk of being arrested in the car accident and stuff? And why did you tell me you broke both of your wrists? How could you possibly write (laughs) me a letter if you've broken both of your wrists? So like the letter that he apparently wrote her that she's referencing contains some elements of truth, like about the arrest and the car crash, but then he also lies. So she says she doesn't believe any of it. Yeah, he always exaggerates any injury he has. Yes, he has two broken wrists. So she's basically saying, you need to get your life together and do something for other people and be involved in the times. And she also, at the end, invites him to come to New York and be a feature in a movie that she's filming, which is about um, (laughs) the disturbing truths of racial interactions in America. And she says, they found a girl from the streets of Harlem to play one of the characters. Um, I have made her my very closest friend. Mm -hmm. I discuss her racial problems with her constantly, drawing her out even when she doesn't feel like discussing them. (laughs) And I can tell how fervently she appreciates these dialogues with me. Yeah, that's the funniest part. (laughs) I can tell she just loves it. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's very funny. So she tells him, she's like, oh, uh, you should come to New York. You can play the racist Irish guy who <laughs> doesn't like interracial marriage. Yeah, <laughs> You'd be perfect for the role. So she's like, don't write to me again until you're doing something with your life or unless you want to play the racist Irish guy in my movie. <laughs> yeah, the last line of the letter is, I hate cowards. Okay, so chapter four, Ignatius has totally stopped doing his job at the office and Mr. Gonzalez asks why and he says, because of a rat eating some papers and because of his valve and gonzalez is like oh okay yeah that makes sense (laughs) yeah doesn't he say we better just wait until the rat finishes eating until it's had its fill of paper we wouldn't want to interrupt his meal because if it bites me (laughs) i might have to file a lawsuit against the company always does that he threatens to file lawsuits yeah they have a client that is upset because they delivered pants that are way too short two feet too short mr gonzalez writes a letter trying to smooth it over When he leaves, Ignatius takes the letter out and, like, rips it up and writes a new letter pretending to be the owner of the factory and then mails that instead. It's got a lot of very offensive language in it, so I'm going to say the word, but it's he comes back over and over again. It's important. Um, So he addresses the letter to Mr. Abelman, Mongoloid Esquire. Which is a super racist, racist offensive word that it's used by eugenicists, still sometimes used by eugenicists. And a lot of times it was like the belief was that there were three different kinds of skulls, basically. Mm -hmm. And that was like the Asian skull shape type. And people use it a lot of times to just refer to someone who was mentally deficient has down in some syndrome. way or has down syndrome or yeah in french the term for down syndrome even today is mongolisme so. oh my gosh okay well yeah so ignatius is constantly using this word which is like a bad like a not a good word at all very bad so he says we have received via post your absurd comments about our trousers the comments revealing as they did your total lack of contact with reality were you more aware you would know or realize by now that the offending trousers were dispatched to you with our full knowledge that they were inadequate so far as length was concerned Um, So he says, basically, we sent you these trousers, one, as a means of testing your initiative, because if you were a good business, you should be able to sell these 
stupid pants, even though they're stupid. <laughs> yeah, you should be able to make them into a trend. <laughs> yeah, and two, as a means of testing your ability to meet the standards uh, required to be a distributor of our product. Yeah, so no matter how abominable they are, you should be able to vend them. Yeah, you should care enough about our business that you sell our product no matter how bad it is. And then he signs the letter, yours in anger, Gus Levy. Yeah, who's the... <laughs> the owner. The, the factory owner. I would love to sign all my emails, yours in anger. You can. <laughs> if I'm emailing, I'm mad. <laughs> so the next section is just more interactions between Jones and Lee, more antagonistic interactions. The section after that, we see Mrs. Riley, who's at home alone for once because Ignatius is at work and she's loving it. She gets a call from Mancuso's aunt, who, according to the way Tool's mother pronounced it, her name is Santa Bataglia. I'm going to pronounce it the way that his mom said it, just because I'm assuming that's how the character Mrs. <laughs> Riley would have said it. She calls her and says, like, oh, yeah, so this old man was asking about you. You still got it, girl. And that's the end of the chapter. <laughs> Wait, who is the old man? The next section, we cut to the levees, and they live in a really nice house with all the latest stuff, and they hate each other. <laughs> Mrs. Levy is always playing with this exercise board. It's like a vibrating... It's a board. It massages you, but there was a while where people thought that things that vibrated would make you lose weight. So, like, yeah. there was this belt that was, like, it would wrap around your waist. That was just, like, And it like, would just, like, jiggle ago. you. Yeah, like the 80s. It, it would just jiggle you. you, and people thought that it was making you work out. We should mention that Mr. and Mrs. Levy hate each other. Mrs. Levy is always bringing up how Mr. Levy isn't handling the business well. So his father left him this business and he's just run it into the ground. And she always talks about how their daughters would be so disappointed in him. And she's going to tell their daughters all these terrible things he does. He doesn't really want to run the business well because he hated his dad. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, uh, anyway, I'm tired of talking about this. And the wife says, good, let's keep quiet. You've never been a father figure to Susan and Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> like she just immediately starts it back up yeah. again <laughs> with the most like contentious topic possible. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, they have a bad life too. So <laughs> In the final section, Ignatius is at home and he decides like, oh, you know, I've been working for a couple days. I'm going to write a column giving people advice on work. <laughs> and so he writes this just like absurd, pretentious call essay that's saying he thinks has commercial potential. That's like giving people advice on what to do at their job. He calls it the journal of a working boy or up from sloth. Yeah. <laughs> and he's been working for like two days. <laughs> and most of his work is him just he's supposed to file things, but he just throws them all in the trash. And then Mr. Gonzalez is like, wow, this guy files so fast. It's almost like he's just like getting rid of them. The files just totally disappear. <laughs> right. But in fact, he is. He decides he wants to come up with some sort of social action to do just to spite Myrna. <laughs> so he's like thinking, hmm, what can I do? What can I do? And he sees that his mom is hanging out with Mancuso and his aunt, and he's really upset that she has friends. Yeah. Super upset. And every time she leaves the house, he goes, I'm probably going to be molested by an intruder. Ugh, gross. He sucks. He's so bad. And every time, you know, she says, I'm going bowling. He says, don't you have arthritis or something? Like, you shouldn't be going. But then he doesn't even know, like, why it is she shouldn't be going. He doesn't really care about her. We're back to the bar. Darlene, it turns out, is watering the liquor. She says that's why she has such a hard time selling the drinks, because they are watery. Lee complains about 
lesbians for some reason. There's a newspaper article about three women attacking a man who speaks to one of them. Lee is Lana Lee, the bar owner. Darlene tells her that to pull in customers, they need an animal, that all the bars on the street have an animal. And she says, oh, we should get my bird to come in. So at this point, the orphan comes back and Jones is paying attention. So Lee says like, uh get out of here orphan and takes him outside and is like only he takes his lunch at a certain time every day so don't come back unless he's gone he's suspicious this is also the point where she has started to notice all of the undercover officers in her bar she notices that at one point darlene almost sold a drink or tried to sell a drink to a cop so now she's getting a little nervous and she's like all right well instead of getting arrested for this maybe we should just let darlene try the bird thing yeah she's worried if darlene keeps being a bee girl that she's gonna get caught so you gotta put her on stage yep it's the only way to save the bar Mm -hmm. the bird guys we should get an animal i hear all the other podcasts are getting animals jackie you are not allowed to have your cat in the room and a human centipede is not an animal by the way okay so the next section gonzalez it turns out loves ignatius he thinks he's doing such a great job but really he's just for some reason throwing everything away planting beans and (laughs) building this giant cross that he's painting with the words christ and commerce i mean he hangs up streamers he throws things away and he plants beans and i'm just like this actually sounds very pleasant he hangs up some like nice purple curtains by his desk. (laughs) I'm wondering how those beans are growing. Like, with what light? I thought there was no natural light. But apparently they are doing very well. I thought they were, like, in a warehouse with big windows. I honestly don't understand how all of these things that Ignatius does fit into his personality. Like, what is the beans thing about? I think this is why it it didn't get published. (laughs) Like, I think there are things that don't make sense. Take out those beans. (laughs) (laughs) He's just a weird guy. It didn't surprise me at all. Just like, oh, yeah, beans, whatever. (laughs) Well, it also is just like his complete disregard for like office mores. You're not supposed to grow beans and throw all your files away. (laughs) At one point, Mr. Gonzalez asks him to like file something in in a bottom drawer of the desk. And Ignatius is like, oh, no, I couldn't possibly reach down there. That would hurt me. So he gets in this little rolling stool and is like, well, just here, sit on this low stool. And Ignatius is like, that is not going to happen. And but he tries it. And he immediately falls off the stool, rolls on the floor, (laughs) makes a huge deal about it, and is like, oh my god, you've broken me, I'm going to die, I'll never recover. And then Miss Trixie comes and trips over him and falls, so now they're both on the floor just rolling around and they can't get up. And that's when Mr. Levy comes, right? And that's when the factory owner comes and just sees them, like, scrambling around on the floor. It's like, oh gosh, these weirdos. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just like, Gonzalez, what are you doing? The only one who's standing up, he's like, what are you doing wrong? Could you imagine being the the manager at that moment? (laughs) Like 100% of my employees are on the floor. (laughs) So the next section we see that Officer Mancuso is still trying to arrest someone. He's still wearing rude outfits and that he was the one arrested or attacked by lesbians that we heard about earlier. I mean, who who among us hasn't been attacked by lesbians? I guess that's true. We're going to have a whole segment of the podcast where listeners write in and tell us about your story of being attacked by lesbians. (laughs) I actually was. Did you know about that? Okay. What are you talking about? (laughs) No, just one. One, one single lesbian. Stephen dated her before she came out, before she realized she was a lesbian. They dated. And she wanted to have a relationship. And he was like, 
I already told you, babe, I'm not in the mood for a relationship or whatever. So she was really mad at him. And then like several years later, when Steven and I were dating, I went to like a nighttime skate party at this skating rink, like a skating disco. I saw someone glaring at me from across the room and I was like, who is that? And Steven was like, oh, I think it's this girl. Uh, Why is she glaring at us together? Because is it because I'm here with you because you're dating someone now? Because not only was this years ago she is not interested in men now (laughs) so why would she care but she just kept glaring at me and steven's a really good skater and i'm a really bad one so he was like discoing around on the floor (laughs) and i was slowly toddling around and at one point she saw me and she like angrily skated right up to me and like bumped into me and of course i'm a bad skater so i fell over (laughs) I had to like skate into the wall and I fell over because of this. Damn. Why do you care? Also, if she was going to bump into anyone, it should have been Steven. Did Steven cease his dancing at that point? No, he didn't. Oh my he was gosh. still dancing. He didn't even see it happen. No, I went to one of those skating discos with you and I was doing great. I was doing amazing. Whoa. But then... A man fell down in front of me and it was impossible to stop. So I I didn't fall down until this happened, but then I just fell over him and I flew through the air and landed on my knee on the wood floor. And I remember like Steven trying to like help me put ice on it and it was just so swollen and I like could not walk for two days. What a place. (laughs) And I glared at that man really hard. He fell over, Jackie. Because it was his fault. So this was actually twice. So the first time I fell over, you weren't supposed to bring beer or drinks or anything onto the skating rink floor. Yeah, people do it, though. Yeah, and he did it. But he he fell down, and I think he had it in his pocket, and it exploded all (laughs) over both of us. And I just, like, gave him the dirtiest look. And I was like, I can't believe you just exploded beer all over me. And then the second time, he fell down. But I don't know. I think I just think he should have been thinking about it before he fell down. <laughs> Wait, so you fell over the same person twice? No, I think it was a different Wait. guy. <laughs> oh, a different guy. Sounds like you just need to keep a little bit more distance between you and the person in front of you. Sounds like you were tailgating. No, no. Everybody's going in a circle. I will say it's kind of disorienting because you've got the disco lights on the floor and they're like flying around in different directions. But Theo, she couldn't possibly have been tailgating because everyone was going in a circle. Yeah, what did that mean? There's no such thing as tailgating. Everyone's like all together. Dan's going to be like, wow, it's like I never even taught her how to drive. The one who fell down without the beer, it was not his fault, but I did badly injure my knee. So did you glare at the guy who fell? Only the first time. She was glaring at everybody. Don't worry, Rachel. Yeah, I don't have any other look on my face. In fact, that was probably me that you saw glaring at you that other time. Resting glare face. Steven's like, that's that girl who was obsessed with me. Well, it's just so weird. It was so weird. It was years ago. Now she's a lesbian. And also, I had nothing to do with Rachel's it. Rachel's always the victim in her stories. Do you notice this? Oh, they she's thought a total I was a Ignatius. My fault. They thought she's I was a witch. Totally that have been my fault at all. Oh my explain. gosh. But explain how that could have been my fault. The skating rink incident. I'm just okay. joking, but you're you're always being attacked by women. No, sometimes men. <laughs> you're basically Taylor Swift. Well, I'm going to let you finish, but <laughs> how did she hit you with, like, did she push you with her hands? She body checked me, crossed her arms and checked me. Oh. is that funnier and she's smaller than you right like she's pretty small she's very sturdy 
She's like a little shorter than me, but she's quite stocky. This is a girl that he like had a little thing with for like literally two weeks or something. And he told her like, I'm not interested in a serious relationship. Oh. And then she said like, I want to have a serious relationship with you. And he's like, uh, I told you I didn't want to. So let's stop seeing each other. <laughs> and she said, don't boogie away from your girlfriend anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> she might get body checked. <laughs> of all the points, I did not think attacked by lesbians was going to give us the most juice, <laughs> the most banter. Yeah. <laughs> That's straight out of an 80s movie, though, don't you think? <laughs> At a roller mm-hmm. disco. <laughs> like the bully runs into you and then skates off. Yeah. Or it would have been great if, like, that man that fell down and exploded the beer everywhere, like, that was our meat cute. Yeah. But in, <gasps> I just actually hated him. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I should have body checked him. Yeah. Well, you don't know. Maybe when you're, let's say, 40, mm-hmm. you have a... <laughs> class reunion for this uh, disco roller skating. Hey, everybody who was at this disco in Durham on this one night, that's our class. 40-year disco reunion. Yeah, and then your eyes meet across the crowd. And then I have a beer in my pocket and I throw myself at him. (laughs) I was thinking maybe he like pulls out an apology letter. An apology beer. Is that an apology letter in your pocket or are you just happy to say Apology beer. You want to hear a weird story about a beer? Yeah. Yeah, just ignore the weird thing I just said. This is my... This is my friend Matt's story about a beer. So so Matt didn't drink until he was 21. Weirdo. The, yeah. <laughs> I, I think at this point he was 19 or 20 and he came out of Walmart. He was in the Walmart parking lot with his friend Jessica and he said, my beard is itchy. And this guy at a car nearby said, did somebody <laughs> say beer? Well, abracadabra, and held out a beer and gave it to Matt. And Matt was like, well, I said beard, but okay. And he, he kept that beer and just like kept it on his windowsill until he turned 21. Isn't that so funny? And you know that man thinks of this to this day, and he's like, that time I made a stranger's dream come true and made them think I was a genie. <laughs> what kind of beer was it? <laughs> I don't know. It should have been a beard, right? But Does it matter? <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious. Ask him what it was. I'm curious to know how expensive this magical beer was. It was antihistamine beer. Oh, that's pretty funny. All right, shall we move on? Chapter five, section four, Ignatius is writing about his work again, writing his other essay of advice. He starts pouting about how his mom is going bowling. She gets picked up by her new friends and he throws an empty ink bottle at the car that like explodes. He gets back to his journal and he starts writing very racistly about how he visited the factory <sighs> earlier. Like, Oh Lord, can we read the bit about the dancing? So let me just get up to that part and then you read it. So he talks about how he's like, looking for a social cause and he goes to the factory which is i think all the employees are black and they're making not a lot of money and he goes in there and he's like he hears that there's some jazz and he thinks well i'm gonna turn that down because jazz is terrible and surely their manager put it on to placate them and they don't like it so he turns it down and everyone gets mad at him so he turns the jazz back up and then he's thinking like i still need to mend my relationship with them what should i do so he says i knew the physical spasm which the music was supposed to elicit so he attempted his own version of it to pacify the workers ignoring the eyes of the workers i shuffled about beneath one of the loudspeakers twisting and shouting mumbling insanely go go do it baby do it hear me talking to you wow i knew that i had recovered my ground with them when several began pointing to me and laughing i laughed back to demonstrate that i too shared their high spirits yeah so he just makes a fool of himself and then he falls down because his knees are so weak and they have to like help yeah him up. yeah 
yeah. <laughs> I just funny. love the yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. he he watches that show <laughs> where teens dance, so he thinks he's yeah. picked up some moves. And I guess that's what people <laughs> say to the teens. He, so he thinks what you say when you dance is, hear me talking to you. Wow. Do it, baby. <laughs> okay, so he then kind of reminisces about his history with Myrna Minkoff, his semi-ex. They met while he was a grad student and she was an undergrad. Apparently, like, the first time they met, they argued a lot and everyone else hated being around both of them so much that everyone left. And from (laughs) then on, they just constantly... So both of them were huge weirdos because she was a super pretentious activist woman from New York who was always trying to make people have sex. And he is this grotesque creature. Like, just think about, like, an an incels caricature of a feminist. That's her. But apparently they just, like, get along really well. (laughs) And they're always together. (laughs) He says, like, oh, yeah, there were rumors we had sex, but I would never do that. Disgusting. Even though she totally wanted to, I was able to fend her off. (laughs) And he says that she was able to convince two girls to have lots of sex and that one of them tried to kill herself and one of them, what, like, dropped out or something. Mm. And he said, like, oh, yeah, well, that convinced her that the problem was that people weren't having enough sex, so she redoubled her efforts. They were such a weird pairing. Anytime they went anywhere, everyone was always, like, looking at them and talking about them. But she eventually, he says that she said, after a few semesters, like, this place has nothing to teach me that I don't already know, and then she went back to New York. He says she's only happy when she's being arrested and thrown down steps or when dogs are biting into her leg. And he says one day she's gonna become incarcerated and then her life will finally be meaningful. They've seen each other a few <laughs> times since then and apparently they correspond. I just want to say about the the fourth section of that chapter, uh, the section where he's writing about his time going to the factory and everything. Yeah. That is something I actually really do like about this book is sometimes you as the reader are witnessing the thing happen. Sometimes you're hearing it from mm-hmm. Ignatius secondhand and sometimes you're hearing rumors about mm-hmm. Ignatius or the other characters within other scenes. I like that, especially as the book goes on, you start to realize how much Ignatius lies. We don't ever get to see what actually happened in this factory. All we know is that a liar is telling us what happened in this factory. (laughs) Also, it kind of goes along with like the thing that you enjoy about Tina Fey's works or that thing that you enjoy about Moonstruck from, you know, our Patreon feed that all these little side characters just have their own lives and you get little glimpses into them. And everything's connected. So it actually feels like a community. (laughs) Should we talk about our new patron real quick before we finish the book discussion? We should. Drum roll, please. Our wonderful new patron this week we would like to thank is Christina. Thank you so much, Christina, for becoming a patron. She did it almost immediately after um, our last Wizard of Oz episode came out, so she'll be receiving one of my special little bracelets. (laughs) Christina is actually an old friend of mine from middle school slash high school, and uh, we were in band together, and she played clarinet just like me. Uh, She also worked on the farm with me, so I was um, a puppeteer, as you guys all know, on a little family farm, and Christina had the coveted part of the pumpkin princess. Whoa. So that's right. We have royalty amongst our patrons. Wow. 
Wow. Amazing. I auditioned for the part of the pumpkin princess, but didn't get it. Wow. Okay. Really? I had to be a puppeteer instead. Yeah, this was a different year. Christina didn't beat me. Some other girl beat me, but um, Christina got it. Maybe if you'd been the princess and she was the puppeteer, she'd be on this podcast now and you'd be the patron. Wait. I know I could have changed the whole course of our lives, but I think she's she's happy where she's listening. So you're telling me you were a puppeteer, but the pumpkin princess was something else, (laughs) not a puppet or a puppeteer. No, there were these like strolling characters that walked around like Disneyland. She painted herself orange and had an orange wig and an orange dress and she carried around pumpkins and she would just like take pictures and then as a little side note I remember so when I auditioned for this it was like freshman year of high school for me so I was like 14 like had just turned 14 and I remember like they had given us these little like character blurbs explaining like what the pumpkin princess and what the scarecrow guy would do and so when I went into audition, the lady was like, all right, um, why don't you like show me an example of something that you would say is the pumpkin princess. And one of the <laughs> things that I remembered from the paper is that she loved round things and she would always like want to touch babies and talk to babies and stuff because their heads reminded her of pumpkins. <laughs> so I just remember like gesturing to this stool that was there and, and just like framing it like a baby's face and saying, oh, this baby's face is so round. <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, all right, next. <laughs> she was like, uh, that's a stool and it's very not round. <laughs> but can you imagine the awkwardness? Yeah, just imagine going up to someone and cradling their baby's head. So and round. Saying, wow, your baby's head is so round. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, 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 you touch their head and you say, what does this remind me of? <gasps> the roundness of a pumpkin. <laughs> a pumpkin. I want to carve it. Anyway, Christina didn't do anything cringy in her audition for the pumpkin princess, obviously, because she got it. And now she's one of our patrons. And thank you so much, Christina. Um, and I hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane. Thank you so much, Christina. Chapter six. So we're back with Jones. At this point, he is hanging out at a place called Maddie's Ramble Inn, which is a combination grocery store and bar. And he is talking to a man called Mr. Watson, kind of complaining about his job, talking about how he has to work with a bird. (laughs) Mr. (laughs) Watson keeps telling him, like, okay, watch your language, don't curse, blah, blah, blah. And a fellow member of the bar says something, and Jones thinks, wait a second, he is telling the story of Ignatius. He hears about this crazy, huge white guy. Who wants to stir up trouble at the factory. At Levy Pants. And he says, like, wait a second, he wore a a green hunter's cap, and he realizes it's the same guy he's been hearing about. (laughs) So he's very interested. (laughs) And he says, oh, stay away from that man. He's a freak. He's in trouble with the police. Like, get away from him. Yeah, he's wanted by the cops. Right. In the next chapter, we have, uh, we're back at the pants factory. And Ignatius has decided to start an organization or a movement that he calls, and I quote, the Crusade for Moorish Dignity. Yeah. And if you don't know what Moorish means, go back to your high school lessons on Othello. A Moor is basically someone from Northern Africa. So Yeah, they're Northern Africans who invaded Spain. There's a lot of beautiful architecture because of them. So thank you. <laughs> There's a lot of things in this book where we have to say like, and I quote, this is what he says. I just have to say what he says. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is just very absurd. So he... um 
He has this sign that he's painted on a nasty yellowed bedsheet from his bed. His used bedsheet that he was, like, masturbating on recently. Which is covered in yellow stains. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) gross. And he writes on this. In big red crayon, he writes forward. And below that, in blue letters, he says, the crusade for Moorish dignity. And he's like, all right, we need two women to hold this. And everyone's like, no, please, it's disgusting. I don't want to hold it. Yeah, he wants it to be, like, a banner. Like, they're crusading. Like, they're going to war. Or something. Yeah, he's like, so the two most statuesque women have to hold this thing up. So two people take it with like their thumb and their forefinger and they're just like, I don't want to touch this. And they're this. grossed out. They're really unhappy about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Ignatius says, all right, everybody, get yourself some sticks and stones and weapons. So people pick up uh, like bricks and bicycle chains and rocks and just whatever they can get their hands on. And he's like, all right. Let's go. He says, lift me up on this table. So he- It takes four people. He's complaining about it. Finally, <laughs> yeah. he gets up on this table. He's like complaining the whole time that he's about to die. So he stands up on the table and he urges everyone to action and he films it with his little film camera. It's like, when I say attack, you attack Mr. Gonzalez. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, the idea is that he's going to send this video to Myrna to show him like inciting the workers to action. So he says, all right, go. And then everybody goes and he's like, wait a second, you got to help me get off this table, though. But every nobody hears him. And he's like, get me off this table. They're singing. Yeah. He says, "Sing sing a hymnal. I don't know anything about you people's music. So you just come up with whatever you want to sing. I wish I'd had time to teach you a madrigal, but (laughs) just sing whatever. So they're singing uh, something about Jesus and they're all marching out and it's actually very, you know, they're all fired up and he's alone on the table and he decides to try to like get off himself. But when he does finally get off the table, he drops the camera and it smashes. The magical thing I find a little weird because if he really hates the Renaissance... The Madrigal was kind of a Renaissance era <laughs> genre. Just saying. Uh-oh. I thought the same thing too. What an idiot. <laughs> but if he likes Scarlatti, then maybe he's fine with Madrigals. So he he leads them up. Basically, just like Mr. Gonzalez is extremely confused. He tells them they're disgusted. Yeah. The women are standing holding the bed sheet backwards. So it looks like, well, they're just holding up this yellowed sheet, but the words are facing the wrong yeah. way. So he's like, no, you got to turn the banner around so he can see it. He tries to get them to attack Mr. Gonzalez, but they're like, we don't want to attack him. He's not, you haven't let him talk yet. You haven't given him a chance to defend himself. So yeah. he's like, attack. And someone throws something and it just destroys his bean sprouts so he gets mad yeah. so someone like half half-heartedly throws a bicycle chain and it just like knocks the beans over so then he's like so he's like no why'd you do that they said well we, you told us to attack and then someone else is like destroying a sign that he made and he's like no stop why are you doing that and they said you told us to attack so they're just only attacking the stuff that he doesn't want them to he's like hey you with the brick come over here and hit mr gonzalez on the head and they're like no and he said i'm not gonna hit anybody with this like you haven't convinced me anything's going on like let's get out of here yeah didn't we hear you had a police record yeah bye and so they just abandon him (laughs) and he's furious and of course he gets fired for this (laughs) because he stood in front of his manager and said hit this man in the head with this brick that's a fireable offense i would say so so the next Mm -hmm. chapter officer mancuso is still pathetic and he is wearing another weird outfit. He's been stationed in a bus station restroom. And in this very short chapter, he gets stuck in the restroom and he can't get out. 
And that's that. So far, he's been like a cowboy and a clown and ballerina, a ballerina, and some weird dude in tights. He's worn like a fake red beard. All kinds of strange things. So for him, Fortuna's wheel is spinning downward. He has bad luck. Yeah. Well, here's the thing about Fortuna's wheel it's a wheel, so at some point it has to come back up. You just don't know how big the wheel is or how slow it's spinning. <laughs> it seems like it's going perpetually down for Mancuso. Poor guy. Oh, great. Okay. So the next chapter, <laughs> Ignatius is home. He's definitely been fired. And his mom is saying, like, where's your bed sheet? He's like, I don't know. Someone broke in and stole it. <laughs> yeah, probably someone stole it while you were out of the bowling yeah, alley. Yeah, like I told you would happen. <laughs> Which I think it's so funny. Like, he didn't take his sheet home with him. He just left it there. Maybe he was escorted out of the building. <laughs> I almost said, like, well, it's been written on, but I, I guess he probably doesn't care. Yeah, there's a lot of things on it. Like, the crayon's the least gross thing on yeah. the sheet. <laughs> yeah. So she tells him, you have to get another job. And he's like, oh, are you serious? <laughs> he's really upset. His valves are bothering him. Yeah. He says, ah, oh, the wheel is going down again. So the last little bit of chapter six, 6.5, is about the Levies. Um, so Mr. Levy, again, is talking to Mrs. Levy, and they're just griping at each other. And she's saying, you need to improve the working conditions at that factory because your girls, Sandra and uh, Susan, who are away at college, were told by some friends that you keep your workers down by paying them below the living wage. It's basically a plantation that you're running. Yeah, it's modern slavery, and they are so ashamed of you. And if you ever want to hear from your daughters again, you need to give those workers a raise. Because I'm going to write to them and tell them how you fired this amazing young crusader for justice. And he's like, no, you don't understand. Like, <laughs> yeah. he's bad. She keeps calling him an idealist, right? <laughs> yeah, she says, I can't believe you fired that young activist. <laughs> and I'm going to tell our daughters, and they already yeah. don't like you. <laughs> so she says, in exchange for me not writing that letter, I won't write the letter if you agree to bring Miss Trixie to me. <laughs> And this whole time he's been refusing to bring Miss Trixie in because he's like, she's incontinent and old. She's just, she's confused all the time. Why would you want her in the house? And she says, you need to bring me Miss Trixie so that I can work on her. And the whole time she's laying on her like massaging exercise board and he keeps bringing up the exercise board and she keeps saying, leave the board out of this. <laughs> Every time yeah. she gets uppity, he's like, why don't you go play with your board? And she's like, don't you talk about the board. Yeah, leave the board out. I love the board. <laughs> He'll yeah. say things like, we'll see how high and mighty you are if I take the wire out of that board. <laughs> Does it seem like the exercise board is like doing not just normal massaging for her? Because she's acting kind of like aroused by You're it. You're saying the vibrations of it's it? It's possible. Doesn't it seem like that? I hadn't thought like about the that. description. It's possible. Yeah. yeah. She's like gripping her face and like making sounds. So I'm like, what is this exercise? What is she doing with it? Could just be a great massage. <laughs> or really good exercise. <laughs> oh, okay. We made it to the end. Yeah, so that was part one of three for the Confederacy of Dunces. Yeah, the, the difficulty with doing this book is that there are just so many characters who show up for a short time in each chapter. They keep coming back. Yeah, and it takes a long time for them all to sort of intersect. All the pieces have been put in motion and stuff is going wrong. Ignatius has been fired from the first of two jobs that he will hold during the book. Wonder what the second one will be. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But things are about to get... Um, Pretty crazy. And yeah, let's see if he turns his life around. <laughs> and at the end, I think at the end of the third episode, or maybe the last half of the third episode or so, we're going to try to spend some time just talking about like the background of uh, the biography of the author and a little bit about.
about um, his mom and just kind of, I think, more interesting facts about just the background and the context of the book itself. Yeah. What are your guys' opinions so far? Theo, you said you thought it was so funny, but then you said at first you really liked it and now you're like, I don't know. <laughs> I think it gets funnier in the last half of the book. Okay. I, I mean, I don't know. I still think the the whole attempted crusade at Levy Pants is pretty funny. Just how wrong it went for him. Yeah. He had this vision in his head and just like every single step of the way. It was just a fiasco. Yeah. It's astounding that he made that happen and then how badly it went yeah. is also astounding. <laughs> the only part about it that I don't like is that poor Mr. Gonzalez, who has only been nice to him, <laughs> he like tears up when Ignatius is like, you, you're exploiting these poor people. You're terrible, <laughs> yeah. whatever. And he like, his lip starts trembling. And so then everyone else feels so bad for him. That's funny though. If only poor Mr. Gonzalez, he right. actually, he, he and Mr. Trixie are like the only people whose interior lives that we see who aren't just terrible. <laughs> it's definitely a lot of chaos. And of course, he because none of these characters are really self-aware at all. He doesn't realize, obviously, he's the one exploiting the workers. And yeah. he's having the truths about himself proved to him at every turn and just like is so blind to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. I like it. Um, What I enjoy most is just these, I think it's, yeah, it's his descriptions and how easily he's able to make something completely absurd. Like, the idea of writing the crusade for Moorish dignity on a stained, crusty bedsheet is just absurd. I mean, I don't have to explain it. <laughs> it's like you couldn't find anything else to write on. Right. It's so inappropriate. It is the opposite of dignity, right? Like, yeah. And he just does things like this all the time with these little just visual jokes, basically. Right. So thanks for joining us for the intro to that. I'm excited to get into the next episode because I think now that we've set the stage, it's going to really be interesting to talk about how the ball gets uh, rolling or continues to roll for these characters. And um, thanks again to Tristan for the suggestion. So if you'd like to follow our memes and videos and little updates and whatnot, find us on Facebook at Fire the Cannon Podcast. We're a discussion group and an official page for announcements. On Twitter and Instagram, we are Fire the Cannon Pod. Our website is www www.firethecannonpod.com Our Patreon is patreon.com slash firethecannon As always, canon is spelled C-A-N-O-N If you want to send us a Gmail and as a reminder, please do send in your little shots fired um, if you have a hot take you'd like to give us about any book or piece of writing or little scribbling you found on the sidewalk, send that to us at firethecannonpodcast at gmail.com Nice. Oh, we need to say bye now. Bye now. Bye, bye now. now.